Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense Contracting and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my guest during a recent panel at the Center Law and Consulting Summit. We did a prep call, so John knows this is coming, so I'll, 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 I'll preface it with that. How many people saw 60 Minutes the other day? Had a very interesting interview with John's former co-worker, boss maybe, boss. Shea Asad, about, and Shea Asad used the term price gouging, that defense contractors are price gouging. I'm not going to ask John to respond to Shea Asad, but I do want to talk about the 60 Minutes because I think this is important. What did you maybe take from that interview? What did you hear? And, and just maybe offer just a little bit of, were you surprised by it? Did you know it was coming? <laughs> what, give me a little bit of, of thoughts. I did work for Shea Asad for many years. Looks like many of you didn't have a chance to see the piece yet, but um, the piece was centered around an investigation that uh, CBS had undertaken for the better part of the last year or so. So we did have some early indications. I testified before the Congress last January, the House Oversight and and Reform Committee, and uh, they were probing some uh, allegations of price gouging, if you want to use that that term. And the 60 Minutes piece, as I see it, really was an offshoot from that interest. Uh, Like much of the work that we do, the cycle of, uh, of our oversight community, whether it's the DODIG or the GAO, identifies some problem areas, and, and then uh, we, uh, we address them, and the Congress will uh, call us to, uh, to uh, address them or testify. And then potentially legislation, corrective action, implementation of the regulation, the whole cycle. Uh, I'm looking at Alan because uh, he's been part of this cycle with us for, for quite a while. And so, yes, I was not surprised by it. Uh, so I worked uh, for Shea for many years as in, in large respect. You know, he's, he's a mentor of mine and continues to speak out about what he feels very passionate about, and that is making sure that uh, we are maximizing your taxpayer dollars uh, to get the most we can in defense capabilities. And that's a good thing. You know, some of the controversial comments that, that he made, uh, I think, can be helpful to uh, remind us all of that duty that we have to make sure that we're expending taxpayer money uh, res- re- reasonably, responsibly. You mentioned the amount that we have so far. We're on the path to well over $400 billion this year as, as last year. And where we sit in the department as uh, contracting and pricing professionals, we interface with, with industry as we had some discussions about your contracting officer interfaces with, with the GSA team. Similarly, we at DOD have a core group of contracting officers. So where I sit now is uh, privileged to lead the, the functional contracting community. And there's, I'm a little bit sheepish to, to, re, to let you know how many people we have, but it's a very large department. We have tens of thousands of people that, that do what we do. And so there are opportunities for variation. What, the, what we serve to do at uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense is try to normalize that as best we can with the tools and, and practices and procedures and, and, yes, the regulation to help present ourselves to industry in a more standard way. A lot of the commentary uh, Mr. Saad had was really related to the world of major weapon system acquisition. Some of you may participate in, in that part of our business, but uh, I would say that for the most part his reflections were were aimed at at that part of our business, which is significant, and it's the, the thing people think about the most when they think about uh, 
acquisition at Department of Defense and contracting, but we recognize that a significant part of our budget is also for uh, services and other uh, requirements that the department has to, to fulfill its mission. And so I uh, wasn't surprised. Uh, I heard a lot of what uh, he had to say, 260 minutes in the years I worked for him. And so we will see there's already the, the inevitable uh, inquiries that, uh, that flow from that. And so we're responding to those now. Uh, certain members of Congress, uh, that message really resonates with them. And, and that's part of our process to, as checks and balances for us. Appreciate that, the ability to talk a little bit about this. It's, it's never a comfortable topic when there's a call out, <laughs> especially so publicly like that. But uh, let's take a bigger step back because what you do every day, what your folks do every day is really focused on this idea of price reasonableness and that the balance that needs to happen between balancing taxpayers' interest, balancing warfighter needs. There's a lot of nuance. Maybe talk through that nuance a little bit mm. about how you all, whether it's changed or evolved or how you are continuing to balance those two needs. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, we used that phrase. I can't remember if we talked about that. Or not. We did. But, oh, so I, the, I, I took the, your... I took the, your so, so the striking the balance is, is kind of a theme that we were on over the last uh, couple of years. And in the pricing arena, uh, we have a rather smallish organization uh, at the headquarters at the Office of Secretary of Defense working for the Undersecretary, Dr. Bill LaPlante. But where we sit, we have the opportunity to try to influence those, those contracting officers in the many DOD components. And that's really where, where the action is at the point of execution where contract awards are made and, and negotiations are undertaken. And so, you know, striking the balance was a, a theme that we set out to remind our contracting officer community that it really is a balance. So if you go to our website, I'll do uh, a plug of our website. I really think it is a very good uh, resource uh, for information, and we're tr- very transparent about uh, the tools and procedures, policies that we put out there, formal and informal. And part of that is our collaboration with the Defense Acquisition University on this pricing, striking the balance series, which a lot of those learning assets that we call them are available as taped webinars uh, for both government and industry topics such as inflation and, and other you know, pricing matters uh, that I think you would find interesting and, and helpful to understand how are we training our, our contracting workforce to address those issues. And striking the balance to me really means recognizing that we do want a profitable defense industrial base, uh, health, a financially healthy industrial base, but not so much to the point where you know, we're not able to take the dollars that, that we've, we've been entrusted with and appropriated to maximize what we can get. So it doesn't mean you know, uh, everything is uh, hard-nosed negotiation to the bone, but certainly we have uh, an interest in, in maximizing competition that you would normally expect uh, com- competition to yield the best price. But I think what we're talking about primarily in the striking the balance was this world of negotiation we have that's, that's other than competitive. And uh, so that, that actually does make up a significant part of our business, just the nature of our uh, product service mix, a lot of that sole source activity. You mentioned this collaboration with DAU, these webinars. I guess the first question, since we have mostly an industry audience of so folks online, there's maybe some government folks, is this, are these webinars available to just DOD or are they available to anyone who wants to maybe understand a little more about how that training is happening? Yeah, most of them are available uh, for, for industry. I know the inflation webinars are, and that that's, uh, was over the last year has been, uh, there's been a lot of interest on that as we offered that, uh, that training live. Uh, talking through, for example, the use of economic price adjustment clauses because 
Uh, many of us, both the uh, government and industry side, have, don't have a lot of experience with that. And so, what are the what are we telling our contracting officers about what they should seek to uh, include in there? So that's a good example of a webinar that is available for industry, and that way you're hearing, you know, exactly how we're training our own workforce. You brought up inflation; it's been a big yeah. deal. Something I think everybody is is really feeling the effects of. Can you talk a little bit about how that's affecting DOD from a pricing contracting perspective, from where you sit, and then? Advice maybe is not the right word, but but what's the feedback you give to industry? Because I think uh, we've seen the, the, the clauses and the, the memos you saw. Steve highlight that as well from GSA, a very similar memo. How has that been working? Has, it been, has there been adjustments, or what do you – give me a sense. So there's a number of different avenues we can take to mitigate inflation together with, with our industry partners. The EPA clause is, is just one. It provides an opportunity to redetermine a price. Uh, most of our contracts are a firm fixed price, and so contracts are a firm fixed price with an opportunity to adjust that's triggered on some type of objective indus, index or uh, whatever is relevant for, for, whatever, for that particular uh, cost element in that contract. Uh, but there's other, other means where we can recognize the risk that industry has. And really, it's, it's risk for the government, too, because we recognize as we negotiate contract prices, uh, the uncertainty means industry will have to price that risk in. And so we don't, we don't want to. And if inflation continues to wane as it has and we, we have embedded in our contract prices uh, kind of worst-case scenarios, uh, that's not good for us either. And so that represented a significant opportunity to encourage our contracting officers to use EPA clauses so that we don't suffer the long-term effects of what hopefully is a shorter-term situation. But speaking of term, certainly there's a lot of contracts that are negotiated with uh, five-year, one-plus-four uh, option years, and so we're seeing a lot of mutual agreement of the parties to have shorter periods of performance. The downside to that, of course, is we're in the cycle of, of having to uh, either award uh, contracts uh, more frequently or conduct competitive source selections more frequently. But uh, certainly we have an open ear to, to whatever industry would like to suggest, whether it's competitive or non-competitive environment, about how we can mitigate inflation together. I'm not sure you have data, but do you get a sense of how economic price adjustment clause is being used, how often it's being used, how long it takes to get through? I know there's been a lot of concern in the industry that it just takes too long or the contracting officers don't understand it, whether it's at DOD, GSA, or NITAC, or wherever. Right. We have a, another part of the department, the comptroller, separate and independent from the undersecretary that I work for. But uh, they owe a report to the Congress. I was speaking with their senior officials this morning about the content of that report. And our contribution to that content, which I presume they will uh, present to the Congress here in the, in the next week or so, we were asked to specifically comment about how we have accounted for the inflation effects on, on the budget presentation. And then we have a section in there about what we have seen in terms of the, the prevalence of use of EPA clauses. Uh, they're not as prevalent as you might think. Uh, we have a lot of our significant negotiations are where there's an opportunity and a conscious choice to, to not go that route and other, other techniques are chosen. So we've chronicled the number of EPA clauses. You know, that's actually one of the things that, that we can have an, uh, an understanding from a data perspective. There is a couple of provisions in the FY23 uh, Authorization and Appropriations Act that addressed uh, inflation or revised economic assumptions associated with, with the current economic environment. 
Um, so we have responded to those. Uh, one of those is a, I would call it a, a variant of the technique or the authorization for extraordinary contractual relief. Rarely used, that's FAR Part 50, and uh, there's a very high bar for that. I, I address this in, in my guidance memos on inflation. Uh, I want to be careful to not elevate expectations that we're going to be able to use that significantly. We've not seen a significant number of requests or approvals for extraordinary relief. The Congress gave us uh, Section 822 that, that would have had us uh, given authority to deal with really extreme conditions of, of inflation, both at the prime contract and subcontract levels. But unfortunately, there was a language in that provision that requires a companion appropriation that never came. And so I didn't implement that in our regulation because I didn't want to create uh, the frustration of, of an authority that we couldn't use. And so there was that. But there was a, a section of the Appropriations Act and a lot of the uh, funding needs, whether that was triggered from EPA clauses, uh, the Congress gave us an additional $1 billion last year. And so we have uh, just recently advise the Congress about where we're going to use that that money. A lot of it is where we have triggered EPA clauses. You know, I want to ask how many EPA clauses, but it's a report to Congress, so I know the answer is going to be wait till the report comes out if it does, right? I mean, I can give you a, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's, it's not hundreds of thousands of contracts, like, no. like you might think. Ten, ten, yeah. Tens? I think even less than that. Okay. Like, all right. We have to take a break. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense Contract and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my recent guest at a Center Law and Consulting Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense Contracting and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my guest during a recent panel at the Center Law and Consulting Summit. Bobby Herbert with Virtuox. We deal with sleep apnea with patients. My question is, you mentioned a website. Did I, I missed if you told us what website to go to. Oh, sure. If, actually, if you just Google defense pricing and contracting, it'll take you right to our website. That was an easy question. So if you're interested in the pricing uh, content, uh, there's four panels in there because we have four uh, directorates in our organization. And so look for the price con- contract a price cost finance PCF uh, section, and under there, there's a lot of resources there. And he also, uh, if you again, because I'm I nerd out on this stuff too. The policy used to have a on the old website. Your policy was very easy to find. It takes a little digging to find the policy, but once you do find where it is and seven clicks to service, there's a lot of good stuff on the policy side too that you guys put out. So, as we actually have a Colonel uh, Jason Holman is here with us. He works in our contract policy director, and we have a policy vault. Uh, we've improved the search capability so you can, uh, if you have just a keyword, it can take it to. I, I really try to limit the amount of policy memos that, that I sign out because our contracting workforce has so much compliance uh, burden on them as, as industry does as well. And so I just don't think it's fair to expect uh, our contracting officials to have to ad- adhere to policy memos. And so We have a procedures, guidance, and information part of the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement. And so where we can, that really institutionalizes uh, a lot of the guidance. And so that's where you can find most of it. But policy means news for us. 
Right. So well, so I, I see the <laughs> secondary me. reporting every day. So we just about uh, <laughs> almost every week, I would say, uh, our office publishes the Defense Federal Acquisition yep. Regulation Supplement, just the ever-changing environment that, that we operate in, and we have uh, frequent engagements with our uh, industry associations to, to talk about those and many opportunities to, to influence that process. But, uh, yes, we do put out a lot. <laughs> And I should say, in our defense, though, most of that does flow from the statute that we implement, the statutes that we implement. And we will, we'll get to yeah. some of those statutes. <laughs> we'll talk about NDA in a little bit as well. Let's come around to the price reasonableness. Mm. Are there things you're doing? Are there steps you're, you're asking contracting officers to take? Is there lack of new, new approach, policy, process that you're saying, okay, how do we make sure that this mm. is price reasonable? In the trenches where, where our contracting officials are, are engaging in these uh, negotiations. Transparency is certainly one of the uh, key aspects to it, and by that I mean the government uh, as as a uh, procuring agent needs to make sure that we have access to the information that would help inform the reasonableness of a price. And so uh, the reason we have the Truth in Negotiations Act for certain uh, procurements that are valued currently over $2 million or in a non-commercial is an opportunity to level that, that playing field for negotiation and, and presenting to the contracting officers certified cost and pricing data. So if you're in the commercial world and you're dealing with commercial products and services, you don't need it certified, but you might need some some information. shouldn't be cost information. should not be the first stop. We do emphasize to our workforce that there is a hierarchy, and it does start with the price analysis. Uh, so if our the contractors we interact with can demonstrate through price analysis techniques that this is a fair price and we can be convinced of that. Uh, that's where we want to start. So reemphasizing that last year and also in the wake of the uh, the testimony that I referred to uh, that I offered, we had, and, and the IG findings, we offered to the Congress some suggested language in this area. Uh, they took us up on it and enacted Section 803, really towards this transparency concept, and, and it has two components to it. Uh, we're working now to implement that in the, in the regulation and the DFARS. The two components really are helping us have the information where we are convinced that, that the product or service we're dealing with is, is commercial, and then we know which, which kind of rule set to follow uh, going one way or the other. And the second part is once it, once it is deemed commercial, determined commercial, what's that hierarchy of information that we need and so look to see us publish a proposed rule to implement that. I expect there will be a pretty straight-line implementation of the language you see in, in Section 803. But that's just one example. We convened a uh, – so we do – because we are a very large organization, we have, in addition to the, the military departments, we have a lot of the defense agencies. And, and so just an opportunity for a very unwanted variation. And so we, we do try to bring together – the experts, and so we've created the, the latest thing is the cadre. So uh, whether you have a pricing cadre, a software cadre, or an intellectual pro- property cadre, to me what that means is we have this federation of, of people that are uh, the experts that are talking with one another so that we can kind of limit that variation. So our pricing uh, cadre, it's it really a subset of the contracting workforce. Only we had about a couple hundred people convene recently, and we talked about these kinds of issues for the purpose of of trying to make sure that uh, we're, we're as consistent as we possibly can, and also talking about emerging issues in, in the world of pricing, uh, such as the use of uh, machine learning to, uh, to do cost estimating and what, that, what are the implications uh, there as we expect um, 
contractors are going to want to uh, take advantage of, of the uh, uh, latest mechanisms and, and tools uh, to, 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 uh, to address the pricing. All right, I'm going to move us off pricing. Mm, okay. Let's talk about contract finance study. I okay. used the trivia question about it. <laughs> um, I thought that was it, was, it was a fascinating study. Do you want to maybe just give a little bit of background on it? It was, I think, if you correct me if I'm wrong, congressionally mandated? Yeah, well, yes, the GAO. Uh, this story started out a few years ago, really, when uh, if you're operating in the space, particularly major weapon systems where you're a recipient of progress payments, uh, this really resonated uh, more with you, but I'll get to how this is relevant to our small business participants in the defense industrial base as well. But it did start out as that progress payments are one of a couple of different forms of contract financing. It's a significant um, and you, you, somewhat unique. I, I know NASA uses it to some extent, but uh, DOD uh, has long used contract financing either in the form of progress payments or performance-based payments as a means to finance our, our contractors, recognizing that a lot of the delivery of systems will take place over a number of years. And so f- for us to expect uh, a company to, to uh, cash float the, the expenses, the operating uh, costs that associated with that for many years before we accept delivery is uh, something that would not necessarily encourage people to want to participate in our industrial base. And so uh, it is an attractive feature in that uh, there's an opportunity to have a lot of those costs covered. So the historically traditional rate has been 80%. And uh, for COVID, a few years ago, we elevated it to 90% for large businesses, 90% for small, up, ticked it up to 95 for small. And uh, just recently, went back to the pre-COVID uh, rates for large businesses to 80, kept small businesses at 95. That's relevant to the study <clears throat> because several years ago, we had a proposed DFARS rule that would have taken a different approach to the way we do progress payments. And that was not received well <laughs> by industry. Uh, and uh, that, that proposed rule was retracted. You know, so the rulemaking process, I know you all are pretty familiar with it, but uh, these proposed rules we put out, you know, you, you don't necessarily expect to see a final rule that looks just like a proposed rule, and that's because uh, we really should be accounting for the feedback that you and others provide uh, in that process, and we adjudicate and very thoughtfully consider, you know, what of a proposed rule we're going to include in a final rule if we finalize rule. In this case, we never finalize that rule, but it did cause quite a bit of uh, reaction and uh, so the GAO uh, picked up on that and uh, offered us a recommendation. We tend to accept GAO's recommendations because they take the time to really go deep into a subject and, and did with this subject. And they recommend that we do a comprehensive assessment of, of the extent to which contract financing really is a lever that we can and should be using to uh, attract uh, companies to want to participate in the defense industrial base and how is that working for us? What is, is, it effect, is it an effective lever? And so we took that on. It was a significant undertaking because particularly during the COVID time, we had uh, contributors from uh, FFRDC, uh, three different universities, some uh, government analysis. And so the product that we uh, published a couple of months ago is also available on our website. 
Uh, so I would certainly recommend that, that you read it. Uh, there's the, the digestible version, which is only 160 pages, uh, and I'd like to think you could, you could get through that in, in a couple hours. Uh, the rest of it is all the appendices that go along with those, those contributors. And so uh, what we've laid out then in those 160 pages is kind of a roadmap of where we think we should go in the future. They, it is a study, so they're just recommendations uh, that, that I offered to, to my boss, and he uh, allowed us to publish that. And so the next step is, for many of those recommendations, w- which ones are we going to prioritize to address first? The, the, most of the recipients of progress payments are large businesses. Uh, there's not a lot of examples of small business getting uh, progress payments, at least directly from the government. But what we found in the study and what you see, and it's interesting you, you mentioned operating margins. We really didn't intend the focus to be on operating margins, although we, we felt like we needed to address that because that was part of the, the GAO's recommendations. Uh, I'll leave for another day a whole discussion of profit policy, which you'll see we, we, we pretty much left profit policy alone, but the uh, interrelationships between you know how we arrive at a financing uh, arrangement through most times through mutual agreement of the parties uh, is interrelated to, to profit. And so, but what you'll see from a small business perspective is our, our reflection on the fact that the money, uh, the cash flow benefit that, that large companies get uh, is not always flowing down into the supply chain. And so whether you're doing business as a subcontractor to a large business or maybe you just have a direct uh, contract for small business with, with DOD. And uh, recognizing that a lot of small business contracts are services contracts, uh, how could we improve the cash flow situation uh, for, our, uh, for all of our participants in the DIB and not just the large companies? And so that's a kind of a central theme. How we get after that is, is uh, a, remains to be seen, but uh, the next steps in the process will be to develop uh, any, any proposed rules that, that we might think uh, would get at those objectives and uh, take, take uh, industry input and, and see where we go from there. We have to take a break. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense, Contract, and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my recent guest at a Center Law and Consulting Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense, Contracting, and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my guest during a recent panel at the Center Law and Consulting Summit. You talked about prioritizing some of the recommendations. Uh, you'll forgive me if I don't know if there's 10 or 100, but has that process been started? Mm-hmm. Have you already kind of started to meet and say, okay, yeah. of these X amount of recommendations, here's the three, five, seven we want to start with? Yes, there's, I forget the number, I think it's something like 14 recommendations or so. Uh, so it's a manageable number. Uh, some of them are more ambitious than others. Only one that we thought might require a statutory change, and that is our observation that for the most part, Prop Payment Act does, does not apply to payments from prime contractors to subcontractors or higher tier subcontractors to lower tier subcontractors. Good reasons for that, you know, the privity of contract uh, leaving to prime contractors and higher tier subcontractors that that business arrangement they have with their suppliers, but also recognizing that in this spirit of of trying to attract new entrants, uh, that's the phrase that's used quite often in the last couple of years, new entrants, 
recognizing we've had a depletion in the number of participants. If that is something that we can address, and certainly cash gets everybody's attention, what can we do to make uh, the DOD a more attractive organization that the companies would want to participate with? And cash would be probably uh, very high on that list. So now, But the other recommendations don't likely require statutory change, but uh, could be advanced through other uh, rulemaking. One of the recommendations was to restore the... Uh, to the pre-COVID uh, rates, the progress payment. And we, we've already taken that action. And uh, we did that in conjunction with the uh, the president signed uh, into law the House joint resolution that uh, ended the pandemic, thankfully. And, and so thankfully for all of us, we've kind of turned the page for the most part on that. And that as a, as a triggering moment to go back to pre-COVID business approach, uh, not only for that matter, but a lot of the other, you see the uh, rescission of a lot of the other COVID-related procurement policies that we put in play. Just as a total aside, and not necessarily asking you to comment on this, but I was looking at uh, GSA's acquisition website the other day, and they uh, put a memo out saying they were keeping the mm. prompt payment uh, rates that came during COVID in, in place and seemed to insinuate, and maybe I read this not 100% right, that they were going to do some sort of GSAR, which is a, the, the, their version of G, DFARS, right. right, to keep them permanent. So I think that's mm-hmm. an interesting, uh, just an aside. Related. Yeah, I've not talked. So I work very closely with Jeff Kosas. Uh, he and I and Carla uh, Jackson at NASA are, uh, along with our OMB colleagues, are, comprise the FAR Council. And uh, we, we do talk uh, quite frequently and try to uh, be as consistent as we can. When you saw the... the uh, the issuance that we jointly offered for uh, imposing the vaccine requirement. Uh, we, we did that in a way that was uh, somewhat standard, and then I recently revoked that because the, the, the president has issued an executive order. But on this matter, I guess, and I have not talked with Jeff about it, but I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that DOD has a lot more money goes through progress payments. I don't know how much GSA spends. They spend a lot also. But they don't necessarily use contract financing nearly as much as we do. So it's probably a, a, a lesser uh, matter for them. And it's definitely not a comparison either. It's just, just you brought it up, and I yeah. remember seeing them. And I don't mean the overall spend. I mean the, the spend that flows through financing GSA. So we have a lot. I mean, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's I mean, a significant part of the $400 million uh, annual appropriation. Let's talk a little, you brought up small business, the impact on small business, and whether we're going to talk about contract finance study or just more broadly, what are some of the things that your office is looking at or pushing out, whether, again, policy or initiatives mm-hmm. around to, to, to address the small business challenges? One of the things we've heard time and again is the number of spend, the spending for small businesses going up. Right. DOD, I'm sure, had a record in 2021. 2022 numbers, I think, are coming. I've talked to Army. I've talked to um, Air Force and Navy, I think all of them have said we met our goals. So it's good news. But at the same time, the number of companies are, are, are fewer. And you have to kind of build up the industrial base from a pricing contracting perspective. What, how are you looking at those kind of dual challenges? A, a lot of that is collaboration with our Office of Small Business Programs. Ferg-Mitha also sits uh, in the same office of the undersecretary that we do. S- some of the initiatives that uh, were weak, as a matter of fact, he's got a small business a week uh, up in Baltimore. I think it's next week, and we're participating in that. And so the, the types of programs that he's offering where we can lend ourselves uh, support and policies and, and uh, how our contracting officers uh, carry out some of those initiatives, uh, 
the PTACs that have been uh, renamed as uh, accelerators uh, now report to Farouk, and uh, and they offer services. And I'm sure if you're a small business, you're familiar with some of those, like Project Spectrum. I know the cybersecurity compliance is is on the minds of a lot of our large and small businesses. And so those those are some things that we're doing uh, together to address small business. the president has, has made small business a priority, small business utilization. Uh, we have a um, part of the equity agenda that the president has is uh, where we've reported back to the White House about the things that we're putting in play to address not only small business but the Ability One program, uh, addressing some underserved communities uh, in both the small business communities and, and, uh, and the Ability One and trying to uh, do more uh, to uh, provide uh, employment opportunities for, for uh, people that are severely disabled or blind. And so uh, those, are, those are some examples. Uh, and then OMB is leading some other initiatives. I mentioned new entrants and, and some, of, some of that focus. Uh, we're working together uh, with our FAR Council colleagues on some other policies that I would say are going to be uh, friendly to small business and, and the use of multiple ward contracting you can expect to see. Uh, some rulemaking uh, proposed FAR rule on that. We've been working closely with OMB and the Small Business Administration. So those are just some examples. The other thing you mentioned was the NDA. Now, again, I will nerd out and say I really enjoy reading the NDA. <laughs> um, all my readings that you were here were SAM.gov, GSA Interact, <laughs> policies. Um, you mentioned uh, 803. You mentioned a few other things uh, around the um, uh, some of the acquisition requirements that Congress put in front of you. Do you want to kind of walk through some of those, some of those, whether you want to talk a little bit more about 803 or more specifically, do you want to talk a little bit more about what are some of those other changes that Congress asked you to look into that you guys are starting to implement or consider or mm-hmm. go down that path? Well, almost all of them will be ultimately implemented in the FAR or the DFAR, mostly DFARs. And uh, if you go to our website, if you go under DARS, Defense Acquisition Regulation System, is one of our four directorates, and they, they have the status of all the foreign DFARS cases, including the 23 NDA, but there is a backlog. I would say we are in a privileged position to be able to interact with the Congress and the professional staff of both Armed Services Committees and House and Senate, uh, outstanding rapport we have with those professional staff members uh, to the point where they invite us to offer our views as they are considering legislation uh, and they're getting ready to, to go into the markup season here now. And so we've provided uh, feedback on a lot of what they're considering for the next cycle. And uh, that feedback is helpful because ultimately the practical implementation of, of some of these ideas is, is helped when, when they get the feedback that, from us that says, well, here are the implications if you go that route. And so. Not that we try to fend everything off, but uh, we have a system where we have a lot of compliance burden already in a lot of the that is well intended, and some of it's in reaction to concerns, whether it's a supply chain risk or a lot of that seems to be the, the uh, a significant part of the, the rulemaking requirements. But uh, there's there's uh, parts of the uh, the president's. Uh, equity agenda, uh, parts of the president's uh, climate agenda, domestic sourcing. So a lot of those really are resulting in rules that, that you see that will find them, their way into contracts and, and clauses that, uh, uh, that will be the department's requirements. And so 
we're in that season now where we're providing that feedback, and, and so implementing the ones from last, last year still continues. We have to take a break. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense, Contract, and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my recent guest at a Center Law and Consulting Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is John Tanaglia, the Director of Defense, Contracting, and Pricing at the Defense Department. John was my guest during a recent panel at the Center Law and Consulting Summit. Two separate uh, topics here. Let me start with the, maybe the easier one. You mentioned there's a backlog of DFAR rules. How big is that backlog? Because <laughs> I, I know I've looked at some of the uh, – I wrote a story, I think, 2018, maybe 2019. How many FAR rules were changed this year? And the answer was like one or zero for mm-hmm. years. Nothing ever changed mm-hmm. in FAR. I think part of it was the two-for-one rule, you know, right. two in, one out. But also I think the Trump administration, generally speaking, was not in favor of more right. regulation. So I think they also – you know, kind of put a right. break on it. But what's your backlog like? I mean, it's it's fairly significant. We have a small team of case managers, less than 10 people, who shepherd these cases through uh, DFARS cases. And if you read, uh, I'm sure most, if not all of you, have read the Federal Register notices of these individual cases, how thoughtful we really need to be about how we explain to the public uh, how we go, went about uh, considering uh, comments received and uh, what we're ultimately going to put in contract clauses or provisions or in the baseline uh, DFARs or FAR. And so each one of those, and it's, it's actually quite less than 10, it's, uh, it's about uh, seven people, each have about 25 cases <laughs> that they're shepherding. And so, but we're making good progress. If you follow our issuances, you see that we have publications uh, on a weekly basis or so, I would say, of both proposed and final rules. And it's just a lot of work, but it's probably a good thing that we're not policy, any policy should be very deliberate and and by its nature. And so if we have a lot of uh, changes uh, that that are more frequent, it it probably creates a lot more churn than than we would want anyway. In fact, there's a fun one that just came out May 25th. I just got a heads up on about OTAs. And the idea of if you're going to move from a prototype to a full production, you don't necessarily, and I may get this wrong, so you'll correct me, maybe if you're you're familiar with it too, uh, you don't necessarily need to alert folks that you're going to move into a, you don't have to have a competition. Do I have that almost right? Yeah. You don't have to go into it. Yeah, so that's been a pretty uh, important, especially in COVID. We we made very good use of that particular authority, non-FAR based instruments uh, that other other transaction agreements. Two different forms, one a research form and one a prototype form, but we have uh, taken license to um, use the prototype form for things you wouldn't normally think of as a tangible prototype, but uh, other prototyping. And then moving, well, the most significant change, I think, in OT authority in the last 50 years, I would say, is around the 2016 timeframe when we got that ability to to take something from prototype to production. So we have a lot of examples uh, in the warfighting capabilities recently that are taking uh, good advantage of that. And one of the good advantages is really attracting uh, non-traditional companies. I had a discussion yesterday with our people at Special Operations uh, Command, and they were telling me about their use of other transaction agreements and, and using some of that uh, that you just described, Jason. And and uh, it's we owe the Congress, though, the feedback that gives them the confidence that we're using that responsibly. It still constitutes a relatively minor 
portion of the annual appropriations, uh, but a significant uh, and growing uh, portion, especially in COVID. If you see the curves on some of the folks like Dell Tech and, and others, how much spending on OTs and the, the curve is way up. Mm-hmm. And yes, DOD spends $400 billion, and this may account for three or five or 10 billion. So generally, it's not a lot. But I think it worries people. Without going too much into the weeds of OTs, I think the biggest concern, however, is the lack of transparency and the lack mm. of ability to protest. Mm. Are there things you're looking at or doing to kind of ensure, one, there's transparency, but two, that if I'm a vendor and I feel like I didn't get a fair shake or I didn't know this was out or, or yeah. this seems, we'll use the dirty word, wired to somebody, <laughs> how do I express yeah. my concern or, or say, hey, John, or contracting officer X, what about me? I, I think I could have done a better job. Yeah. Have, you, have you started to look at that too? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the balance we're trying to strike here, though, is I pretty I would say nobody wants us to impose a far like regime on the use of of the transaction authority, and let's keep it relatively free from a lot of the burden that uh, that's associated with far based contracts. But there are some baseline requirements. Transparency is is a key part of that, uh, and so it starts with just understanding the transactions that are occurring so we can get our arms around that. And so I've issued, contrary to what I said about policy, uh, I don't, I can't use the FAR and the DFAR to address our workforce uh, with OTs because the, the FAR doesn't apply to OTs. So uh, I had to find uh, another way. We have guidance document. Uh, I actually co-authored the, the 2016 version and there was a 2018 version of the OT guide. And and uh, Jason's colleagues in our contract policy organization will have an update uh, we'll be publishing here in the next uh, month or two, I would say. Really, uh, and it's a guidance document because it addresses some of those things. And the statute, though, commands the use, maximum use of competitive uh, procedures. And so we do that. Uh, there was a recent Court of Federal Claims uh, case that uh, asserted that they have jurisdiction over uh, bid protests uh, of OT awards. And it, uh, so in my discussions with my general counsel colleagues, they reminded me that uh, it's probably not, not something to be too concerned about or alarmed about just because uh, uh, companies have a, a forum in federal district courts that, that they could have already uh, brought some of those grievances to anyway. So just another forum uh, to bring that. So it's not my intent to... Uh, to fight that, I'll let the uh, the Congress and the Judiciary Branch <laughs> decide what the jurisdiction of these matters are. Uh, and it's not a bad thing that we're, we're held to account for making reasonable source of decisions and competitive decisions. So. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from John Tenaglia, the Director of Defense, Contracting, and Pricing of the Defense Department. John was my guest during a recent panel at the Center Law and Consulting Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.